This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for this 98th consecutive program since we started the COVID pandemic. And we have a lot of information to cover today. Uh, I have two guests today. Uh, In the second segment of our program, we're going to hear a taped interview I did with Dr. Corey Edgar, who's an orthopedic surgeon at the University of Connecticut, about something fascinating, blood flow restriction therapy. This is a new form of therapy uh, used to heal injuries, and it's used postoperatively. So we're going to hear from him about that in that segment. In the second half of our program, my guest is Dr. Stephen Schutzer. Dr. Schutzer is a a frequent guest on our program, and he is now physician executive with uh, Trinity Health of New England and chairman of the Department of Orthopedics at St. Francis Hospital. But we know him best because he was one of the founders of the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. And it is the 15th year anniversary of the CJRI. I'm very happy to say that for the 13 years that we've been on the air at Healthy Rounds, CJRI has been one of our original partners uh, throughout this time, and it's been great to work with them. So we're going to chat with him about looking back at joint replacement over the past 15 years and how CJI, CJRI has really made this a value-added approach and taken this value-added approach. Funny story. Uh, I was chatting with someone yesterday uh, about this, mentioning that Dr. Schutzer was going to be on the air. And, and this gentleman said, you know, Dr. Schutzer put my hip in at CJRI. And more recently, uh, he said, there's nowhere in the hip. And I think he also had his knees done, and um, the equipment they used, the implants they used, were such state-of-the-art. All these years later, 15 years later, um, he still has no problem with them. So interesting, and we'll chat with Dr. Schutzer about that. Uh, A lot going on. (laughs) Yes, a couple of things I think we have to take note of. (laughs) One of them is, all right, football season is starting. And lo and behold, we have the Green Bay Packers, right, up there in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they've had a lot of famous quarterbacks, and probably the most famous of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, um, their head coach uh, for many years. But now we have Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers, he, uh, you might remember, a famous quarterback, um, you know, became famous for also in the healthcare field of spouting off a lot of unproven COVID treatments that he recommended for people who may seek him out as their doctor. Um, he is famously not vaccinated. But more importantly now, he has come out with 
a new treat, a new uh, supplement he has been using called Ayahuasca, Ayahuasca, uh, Ayahuasca, and the Ayahuasca is a beverage. It's a hallucinogenic beverage from South America, and the Ayahuasca beverage uh, is something that he now says is what made him great in recent years. It it, it improved his performance. Now, that may be the case, okay, but it is a hallucinogenic. And what Mr. Rogers doesn't understand, there are many young football players out there who want to emulate him. They want to be as good as him. So now they find out that he's taking ayahuasca. Maybe they should go find this hallucinogen or try some other hallucinogen that might make them better. We've seen this problem before with steroids, right? Because we see athletes who use steroids, they built up big muscles. We've got a problem with steroid use in high school athletes. So I urge anybody, when you're in a position of leadership, when you're in a position of fame and people are looking at you, try to be somewhat responsible. That is irresponsible. What you do in your private life, that's your business, okay? But don't. Don't start making this something that others may want to emulate. And then we have Brett Favre. Here's another famous Green Bay Packers quarterback. And he came out to talk about his brain. Um, and he said that he believes he's had over 11,000 concussions. And he goes on to define a concussion – Suddenly he became a neurologist, okay? So he goes on to define a concussion as whenever you hit your head on the ground and you're stunned, that would be a concussion. Wrong, Brett, okay? A concussion is very well defined as a syndrome, a group of symptoms of immediate and transient neurologic impairment that persist, okay? So... When you bunk your head, when you bump your head and you're in the attic and you get up quick and hit it and you suddenly see stars for a couple of seconds, you didn't have a concussion. When you've run high speed into that same obstacle and you've lost consciousness and for the next several days you have headache, nausea, visual abnormalities, that would qualify as a concussion. So um, once again... Uh, I feel sorry for people who are now getting their medical information from the Green Bay Packers. Uh, let's hope uh, they do better in football than they are in the medical field. Uh, the COVID positivity now is 9.88% here in Connecticut. There are, over, there are now over 1,037,000 deaths uh, in the United States. Global deaths are now up 35%. So we're starting to see more deaths worldwide. And 5 to 10% of children now have long COVID. Now, some people said, why do you still give the percentage uh, of the 9.88%? Because it's important for us to know how much COVID there is in our community. And, and that's why we're looking at that number. Uh, so we know. And it's been hanging around 10% for a while. It was up to 12% last week. So people will know when they need to be more cautious. 
August 20th, 1915, uh, Dr. Paul Ehrlich died. Dr. Ehrlich was a German bacteriologist who described Ehrlichiosis, and it's a, a word we, we keep coming across here in Connecticut. Why? Because it's a tick-borne illness. Much like Lyme disease, it's bacterial and fortunately responds to doxycycline, but it can be fatal in 2 to 5% of people who get Ehrlichiosis. It's, it starts with a flu-like syndrome, diarrhea, nausea, headache, but it, if untreated, it can lead to coma and seizures and eventually death. The good news is it is effectively treated with doxycycline, the same thing we take for Lyme disease. So sometimes you'll get a tick bite. You don't know if it's Lyme or not, but out of caution, your physician will put you on doxycycline which would also treat Ehrlichiosis. So we remember that, and he uh, passed away in 1915, and we have seen more and more Ehrlichiosis as our geography has changed here in the United States. A uh, quick mention, we mentioned last week about polio and seeing it in Rockland County. Very interesting. In the United States, the vaccination rate for polio is 92%. I also mentioned that in New York, it was 86%, significantly lower. But in Rockland County, it's only 60%. So one county north of New York, it's 60%. And even more importantly, in one zip code in Rockland County, it's only 37%. Only 37% of the people in that zip code, are vaccinated against polio. What does that tell us? That tells us that for some reason the anti-vaccination message and the misinformation has affected one specific area. And those children are vulnerable. Now we knew this because in 2019, right, before we dealt with COVID, there was a big measles outbreak in the same area, in Rockland County. Then COVID came, and we saw more illness and more deaths in Rockland County. So somehow we have to improve how we communicate with people in Rockland County. We have to compete with the misinformation these folks are getting on the Internet. Because when you find one case of polio, as they did now in Rockland County, there are at least 100 others available. And the vaccine is an inactive vaccine. It's an oral vaccine. And it's over 99% effective in avoiding paralytic polio. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with the tape discussion I had with Dr. Corey Edgar about blood flow restriction therapy. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing my friend and colleague, Dr. Corey Edgar. Dr. Edgar is the co-director for the Institute for Sports Medicine here at the University of Connecticut. And I wanted to discuss with him an interesting topic of blood flow restriction therapy, which is something new in the area of sports injuries. Corey, welcome to the show. Uh, Tony, it's uh, Dr. Lessi. It's great to be on the show and uh, always appreciate uh, you having me on. Uh, you always have great topics and I'm, I'm happy to be on. So explain to us 
what is blood flow restriction therapy? When I start thinking of blood flow restriction, I start thinking of ischemia, decreased circulation, and uh, gangrene. So what does it mean in terms of therapy? Yeah, so I think everything has its limits, right? So the objective is, as I will get into, reducing the blood to an extremity, but not to the point of gangrenous uh, ischemia. Uh, So this is actually relatively newer technology, I guess. It's a therapy modality that a lot of uh, professional sports have been implementing for quite some time. It's actually been around since the 80s. Um, It's something that in uh, Japan and China uh, and the Asian uh, section of the world has been implementing, like I said, since the 80s and 90s. But basically what we're doing is we're using restrictive bands and the technology has progressed where we can have a little bit more control and feedback. And the idea is as we're asking our muscles to do an activity, and as you know, they request back from the body more blood to them as they feed themselves and they get rid of harmful byproducts. The blood flow restriction thought process and the science now that's supporting it Basically, the idea is that we're restricting vascular, excuse me, venous outflow, but still allowing arterial inflow. That changes pH. It increases uh, more metabolites. The simple way to put this is is you're tricking your body, the muscles, to recover from running a marathon when you only ran a mile. So when we think of that, when you decrease venous flow back to the heart, While arteries are still putting blood in, isn't there blood pooling in that area? Don't you develop swelling? You do. And that part of that swelling is what we're looking for as a response. Now, there's response that comes from uh, breakdown products, increase in lactate, changes in pH that stimulates a recovery response in the muscles. But this thing goes a little further in that it's, it's stimulating the vascular endothelia. So basically the lining of the inside of the blood vessels, which are very uh, potent producers of of local and systemic hormones to produce things that increase vascular expansion. So vascular endothelia cells, uh, hormone growth uh, growth factor, uh, vascular, excuse me, uh, uh, VEGF. uh, These are all local factors that stimulate uh, new vessels to form, angiogenesis, myocyte expansion, so basically proliferation of muscle mass. The traditional technique had been to use this for bodybuilding and and just normal muscle recovery. We're really using it for the post-injured patient that's recovering from a surgical procedure, but there's actually good data that suggests that we can actually do this as a uh, pre-surgery treatment that can lessen the effect of the post-surgical muscle loss, especially from uh, the interoperative ischemic event of using a tourniquet. Corey, give us, uh, our listeners <clears throat> and me, a practical example. In other words, um, of how this might be used. So, for example, is it something a patient would go to their physical therapist for, but ahead of therapy, or is it ahead of surgery, or is it something that maybe after knee surgery you would go and have this done? What what would be the practical significance of blood flow restriction therapy? Yeah, so uh, the indications are expanding. I think the 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 data that support that supports its primary usage now 
is post-surgical, typically post-surgical knee recovery. And as the name implies, blood flow restriction, we're doing this with blood pressure cuff type of devices. That so you you're would... measuring how much pressure is there. Absolutely. And the technology, as I said, has gotten to the point where our goal is to try to occlude anywhere from 50 to 60 or 50 to 80 percent occlusiveness. So it's not 100 percent. So like obviously when we're doing an intraop, we're doing to the point where we're almost completely reducing the amount of blood flow. It's kind of like when you're getting your blood pressure checked in the office where you're starting to feel it. It's not overwhelming, but you feel the pressure of having the blood pressure cuff. That is the time at which we're kind of using this. In applications, um, recovery from injury, either traumatic injury or surgical insult, um, is really where we're using it the most because it incorporates muscles quicker, but more importantly, it's limited um, uh, demand, meaning we can provide a maximum muscle reaction, meaning we can maximize the muscle um, insult, if you will, recovery without overdoing with the patient. So imagine somebody's recovering from a surgery, they have some limitations, not weight-bearing restrictions, but they have some limitations in what they can do. This allows them to basically do things at a lower level, riding a bike, electrical stimulation, things like this, where it can be compounded on top of what they what can, they can normally expand upon with the blood flow restriction. So let me give you another example, and I don't know if this is a good one, but suppose someone has a stab wound to their calf muscle, right? Yeah. And they're recovering, not acutely, but they're recovering from that. Is that something where blood flow restriction therapy might help the muscle uh, regenerate? So regenerate is a, I'm not sure if I would apply that term to this just okay. yet. Um, and, it, and the wound itself is not what we're talking about. You're talking about an injury to the muscle itself. So w what the data supports is that it's, it's creating a proliferation of the, of the muscle cells, not only in number, but also in growth, just like you would get when you go to sure. the gym and work out. Yeah. So yeah, it has the potential for any of that. And as I said, it's systemic effect. So there are people that are using blood pressure cuffs on the thigh to support patients that are recovering from, say, throwing injuries or shoulder surgery. So it has a downstream effect, not locally downstream in the blood flow sure. cascade, but a peripheral systemic effect. Is that something that you're going to start using in patients here at UConn? Yeah, absolutely. I think we just hosted a symposium um, on this, brought in a panel of experts. And to be honest, it was an educational process for me. I have seen patients in which we've applied it and seen great success. I, I typically see a lot of patients with anterior knee and patellofemoral problems. You know, that's my expertise. And a lot of times these patients in particular struggle with getting working through pain and, 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 and maximizing muscle strength. And so this is a great avenue for them. Like I said before, I joke with my patients, your leg feels like it ran a mile when you're only, you know, walked a mile. Sure. So there's a lot of potential there. So it was to open up this technology to all the therapists and trainers within the local community. Uh, we had like 70 people there. It was fantastic. For us, we are really trying to implement this in our patient population and actively doing research. I think one of the areas that I think it's going to be most um, helpful for my surgical patients is this whole concept of preconditioning that I talked about. Yeah. 
having somebody that I know is going to need a surgery for, let's say, an ACL is the most typical, those those people we can further potentiate the recovery process by taking them through five to six short sessions pre-having them. It preconditions them so that they have less of a post-surgical muscular atrophy or quadriceps loss phenomenon. Corey, thanks for your time today. Um, this has been great, and uh, thanks for bringing us up to speed on everything going on here at uh, UConn Health and the Musculoskeletal Institute in the Department of Orthopedics. It's my pleasure, Tony. Thanks a lot. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. I want to thank Dr. Corey Edgar for spending some time with us on that uh, interview. But in this segment of the program, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Stephen Schutzer. Dr. Schutzer is the chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at St. Francis Hospital, a physician executive now with Trinity Health of New England, and one of the founders of the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute 15 years ago here in Connecticut. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Tony, good morning. Great to be back on your show. So let's talk. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I think it's important. I mean, how did you get all these different doctors together? Don't forget, uh, everybody was in private practice. Everybody was competing with each other uh, to some degree uh, in the orthopedic field and particularly in joint replacements. How did you guys how did you bring this whole thing together early on 15 years ago? Yeah, Tony, it's a, it's a great question. And um, looking back at it, we wonder how we actually pulled it off you know, to bring 10 orthopedic surgeons from different practices who are really kind of fiercely competitive with, with each other. But so picture this, 2006 is when folks in our age group started to come of age. And we started to see this exponential rise in the number of patients requiring joint replacement surgery. And it caught us a little bit by surprise. And the conditions in all of our hospitals at that time were not favorable, not capable of handling this explosive volume. We had backlog for, for three months and getting three cases done in a day was, was a big feat. And of course the surgeons had no input into the day-to-day operational uh, processes. So we kind of put our differences apart. You know, we, we sat down together and said, I don't know if we read the book, Finding Allies and Building Alliances by Keating, but uh, it, it, we really became a value alliance, although we had our differences. We also had a shared common pain. We had hospitals that were not willing to work with us to create these operational efficiencies. We had the insurance companies. and. So we had to put our differences aside and, and co-created a vision to create a recognized destination site for our arthroplasty. Who were the original founders? I know Mike Joyce, um, and I know you. Um, who else were there among the original uh, members of CJRI? Yeah, so John Grady Benson, yeah. Gordon Zimmerman, Cortland Lewis, myself, Dr. McAllister, Dr. Green, Dr. O'Brien. Oh, gosh, I don't want to think about Dr. Maley. There were 10 <laughs> right in front of me. There were 10 of us. And, again, we came from very different very different backgrounds and often greeted ourselves unceremoniously, I might add. But I said, guys, <laughs> who doesn't have a three-month wait for an appointment here? Why are we competing with each other? Let's put that aside and develop something very unique and very special for our patients. 
So what's happened over time? Because many of the names you mentioned are retired now. Um, so have you brought other younger uh, surgeons joining uh, the CJRI group? How has that all evolved in terms yeah. of the surgeons and people operating there? Yeah, that's another great question. And we, we knew from the start, Tony, that we needed to develop our own unique culture. And, you know, we were building what really was known now as a hospital within a hospital. Separate staff, separate physical locations, separate scrubs, you know, a, a different look. And once you form that culture, which can take three or four, maybe even five years, then you sort of have a gravitational pull for other surgeons around the state and then to bring in young blood. We've got a, a bunch of, of, of younger surgeons that have joined fellowship trained superb emerging leaders that have embraced our philosophy and our culture and we're, we'll be happy to turn over the, the reins when, when the time comes. Well, how did you decide then, uh, and one of the big things was everybody, I mean, it's orthopedics, right? Everybody uses their favorite implant. Everybody's got their favorite saw or screwdriver. I mean, everybody uses different brands of equipment. How did you come to some consensus as to what you would do because obviously it would not have been efficient for st francis hospital to have you know 10 different setups how, how did you guys come to a conclusion on that <laughs> you know i'm chuckling because i remember that first meeting in the siri boardroom when <laughs> it had to be interesting uh, it, it, well we had pizza and beer and uh that all <laughs> that helps and then one of us just sat in front and said listen steve you're bringing over 10 different cases for a knee replacement. Let's put them all on the table. And literally went one, one instrument at a time. I said, not me, my colleague said, who would use this? And we all said, well, you know what? That's actually close enough to my widget. <laughs> so okay. I'll take your widget. And we went through all of these cases. It literally came down to it. That was a first team building, team bonding experience to just to pick the same instruments, for goodness sakes. So one of the things uh, I remember early on uh, about CJRI had been a consensus as to what would qualify as an implant that you would use. So if you were replacing a hip, right, every company has their own. And I remember a discussion with you about how you had a, for you to use it, it would have, you would have to be proven um, before you just put it in. How did you... How did that process evolve to make it, I guess, value added? So you got the best value for whatever you were implanting as part of the joint replacement. Yeah, so Tony, there, there are two questions embedded in that. <clears throat> One is, is implant choice? And you know, it, it, basic primary implants today are a commodity, whether they're, they're like 16 different vendors, and they're very, very similar. They're largely titanium stems with a, a biolock ceramic head and so on and so forth. It, it really is a commodity industry. And we always believed in surgeon choice. That is to say, if I was going to, surgeon wanted to join us from 50 miles away, far be it for me to sell Surgeon X. You want to come join us, but you need to use my implant. So we've always said as long as the implant device industry matched our threshold price, and of course if it was an approved implant, which most of them are, then we would welcome that, that, that diversity. So we've never pigeonholed surgeons into specific implants. Second part of your question is a good one too, that's how do you bring in new technology? 
right? So we, we, we from the very beginning, because what Phoenix says about new technology, we're bombarded with new stuff and widgets and shiny things, some of which haven't always worked out that well. So we set up a new technology evaluation committee to vet out the science behind new technology. And if there wasn't good science behind it, we all agreed to study it first rather than immediately implement uh, the, 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 those devices. So let's really get down to the crooks of the matter. Why have your outcomes been so outstanding as compared to others? Uh, I, I don't know who the others are, but I know that your program has consistently been nationally ranked. Um, and when you look at that, that's, a bet, that's based on better outcomes, um, fewer infections. How did you... How did you get to that level? Yeah, you know, that that really is at the core of why CGRI has succeeded. And it goes back to the days before we even signed our operating agreement. The 10 egomaniac orthopedic surgeons actually agreed to two basic principles. One, to standardize our approach to care delivery by creating and abiding by consensus-based clinical protocols. And two, to making data-driven decisions. That in itself is unique. Surgeons were quite a kind of preeminent, you know, I want to do what I want to do and my way is the right way. But we agreed to those basic principles and we then agreed, in fact, it was on our original five core principles that we presented to St. Francis, our partner, back in 2006, that we wanted a registry, a joint replacement registry. So we now have over 45,000 patients, Tony, with 1,000 data elements for each patient in our registry that we continue to mine for outcomes and insights and then respond to those insights. So we continue to iterate over the last 15 years better outcomes. We do pay attention to our data and react appropriately to it. So obviously in doing that, I mean, you really had to transform the culture. Um, it takes a cultural transformation because if someone doesn't have a good outcome, Right. It needs to be scrutinized and nobody likes their work to be scrutinized. So how did you get beyond um, that culture where someone would take it personally in looking back at a case that may not have gone well? So that was a key element in our evolution and our transformation. For the first, ten, first two or three years of our existence, I was doctor number 10. No one put my name up when we were reviewing our outcomes. Why did I do that? Because I didn't trust the data, Tony. And one thing about a physician, once they can poke a hole in the data, they'll never believe it again. Mm -hmm. So it took us two, three, maybe even four years to clean and adjudicate our data, have surgeon input on their data, because it wasn't clean. Sometimes, you know, I would tell a surgeon, you know, it looked like you had an infection in the last three months. They said, no, no, I didn't. I had an infection in the last three months. Well, you know what? We call every single patient 90 days after their operation. Some of them are now sunburns in Florida. They're vacationing, and they've had these complications that don't even come back to us. So it comes down to data, trusted data, actionable data. After a year, you know, our infection rate at one point was like 0.3%. I didn't believe it. I thought it had to be better because that was so much better than anybody else. Well, it turns out it was a little bit more than that. But at some point when we felt that our data was clean, adjudicated, scrutinized, and actionable, we then de-identified ourselves. And my data is up there with, you know, with Dr. McAllister, Dr. Joyce. And if you have a bad month, let's take a look and see why. We all do and get better with it. 
You know, we're focusing our discussion on the surgeons themselves, but we know it's taken a lot more than just the surgery when you're doing joint replacement, right? You're um, choosing the right patient, prepping the patient, and more importantly, post-operatively, physical therapy is, is crucial. Um, how did you get that coordinated, and what were the innovations in terms of rehabilitation after joint replacement? Yeah, so that goes back to our, our roots as well. It goes back to our culture. You know, when we started this program at, at, at St. Francis, we had no staff. <laughs> we were going to launch a program and no staff. So Bob McAllister, who was the, the inside guy at the time, we, we, we had a job fair. And, and we found that the message that we were communicating to the communities, the, the allied health professionals, was really resonating. People sort of gravitated to this new concept of, of an independent a hospital in a hospital type mindset, energized, entrepreneurial, and innovative. And suddenly we had a flood of, of folks from around, around the state. And that really is our secret sauce. Tony and the docs are, I'm the same doc as I was, you know, 20 years ago at my other hospital. We all, we're all the same doc, but we're made better by the staff of folks around us, our anesthesia partners, our nurses, our physical therapists, our case managers, all of the caregivers that are part of this team, they really deserve the credit for our outcomes. You also have a new physical plant um, uh, to some degree. I, I know my father had his uh, hip replaced. Uh, uh, he lives in New York, had him come up to CJRI many years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, then it was, you didn't really have your own physical plant um, uh, in terms of you had an orthopedic floor. But um, that's changed a lot, too, at St. Francis, hasn't it? Yeah, it sure has. You know, and that, that goes back to our very beginning as well, because when we first launched, there was no separate physical plant. But the founders believed that on day one, we needed our separate space. So we, I guess you say we drove a hard bargain, but we just could not wait for three years until the new tower uh, uh, opened up to launch our program. So Chris Dattle is then president and CEO, made some bold decisions and, and moved some folks out of their spaces. It was not a very popular move, as you can imagine, to move other folks. <laughs> People don't like to give up their space uh, easily. But we started on day one on uh, July 31st, 2007, with five dedicated operating rooms that were separated from the rest of the hospital, separate PACU, separate floor. And we, right from day one, started to develop that culture that we've talked about a few times here. And then in 2010, of course, we launched uh, our, our program in the JTL Tower of St. Francis. And it's just been an amazing experience. What do you feel has been, well, not the biggest, but among the, the best, the biggest accomplishments uh, of CJRI over the course of the past 15 years, Steve? Yeah, well, there, you know, there are many. We just celebrated, uh, say, our 15th anniversary. And, and, and looking back, Tony, it really is somewhat surreal that we had the I think some of it is the guts. I mean, we, we all took risk. I mean, many of us were told we're committing professional suicide. Uh, your patients are, are not going to follow you. Why, why would they come with you? And I said, oh, my God, <laughs> maybe they're right. So we all took some risk. Uh, so that's an accomplishment of its own. But then there are a number. You know, our, our, for example, the registry that I touted a few moments ago is only one of five still in the United States that's credentialed by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons. There's a company out there you may have heard of called the Validation Institute 
that validates claims of superiority and excellence, but they go and they validate your, your registry. That's been validated. We launched the first commercial, in fact, some years ago we spoke about it, Tony, we, we launched the first commercial bundle payment state of Connecticut with Connecticare back in 2012, when most insurers were still worried about collecting co-pays. Now bundle payments and episodic-based payments are obviously front, front and center. And there are a number. We've won various awards and recognitions. We're also ISO certified, ISO 9000, uh, I'm sorry, ISO 9001 certified uh, as a quality management system in, in 2014. I mean, those are just a few of the things that we've done to kind of continually push the envelope and drive for e excellence. Now, it's clear how this benefits the patient in terms of lower infection rate, better outcomes, but how does it help the hospital to have all of this? For example, uh, is St. Francis or the surgeons reimbursed the same as everybody else, or are you able to negotiate better because of the quality and having a registry um, before doing the same surgery? Yeah, again, two parts to that, Tony. One is how does St. Francis benefit from having supported and partnered yeah. with 10 entrepreneurs? And, that, and that's the spillover effect, right? I mean, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, um, professional envy maybe, but you know, all of the services want to be like CGRI. So it's a natural spillover, and the brilliance for the original administrators that embraced our vision knew that we would have to interface with every other sector of the hospital. We needed physical therapy, we needed lab, we needed microbiology, case management. So, we, it, you know, it's the rising tide lifts all boats concept. So just by having us as a, uh, as a draw, as a magnet, there's definitely spillover effects. And when patients came to St. Francis over the last 15 years, 45,000, they say, boy, they don't say, say CGRI is great. They say St. Francis is an amazing hospital. And it is. So, so from that perspective, there's always that, that, that spillover uh, effect. From a contracting perspective, not so much in fee-for-service. Those are negotiated. I, we really don't have that much to, to, to do with that, and I suspect that's at another level. But in terms of value-based arrangements, we have driven the bus on that. We have pushed the envelope for episodic-based payments with a number of vendors, you know, Carum Health and Bridge Health and um, Mount Sinai in New York and, and, and many, many others. So that is something that has really been led by, by us. And then again, we have taught other sectors of St. Francis, other disciplines, how to embrace value-based healthcare contracting arrangements because that is the future of payment reform. Can you give me an example of other uh, groups that have embraced that at St. Francis? Yeah, the cardiology group for one. They're, okay. they're our, our very close sisters and brothers. We've been mentoring them along the way. They now have a contract with Avant-Garde Health as their financial data analytics company that we've had for a number of years. Uh, we use Force Therapeutics as a patient engagement platform. I think they're using CareSense, but, mm -hmm. but very similar. Cardiology very much have been working with us over the years. I think the OBGOAN and Women's Health have also uh, uh, you know, imbibed some of this information. And just from our interactions with our colleagues uh, across the other sectors, We've, uh, we've had a, an, an impact, I believe. Well, Steve, this final question is the one I've been looking forward to most. Uh, 15 years behind you, what do the next 15 years look like at CJRI? Yeah, you know, I, 
the current state of healthcare, Tony, by any metric, is kind of dismal right now. And I love the, the saying, the darkest hours before the dawn, because as the eternal optimist that I am, I don't think there's been a more exciting time in healthcare. It's just so ripe, Tony, for innovation and disruption. But the, the tidal wave of change is unstoppable. We're all going to be affected. CGRI is no exception. Coming out of COVID, financial restraints, staffing restraints, and so forth, we're going to have to learn to work smarter and not harder. So CGRI, once again, is embracing these changes by adapting and iterating and redesigning our workflows so that we can continue to improve. But I would tell you this, as we finish, our, our core value is that no matter what, our patients and their families will always be at the top of the pyramid. And that's the end of the story. Stephen, thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for always being willing to spend time with us today, as you have. But uh, more importantly, thank you uh, to CJRI uh, for supporting this program. Uh, it's really thanks to you and your original vision of working with us that have kept us on the air for the last 13 years. Um, so I <laughs> well, want to personally you thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for your leadership, Tony, and having me on again. Have a great weekend. Great weekend. Thank you very Take much. Take care. Bye-bye. With that, we're going to wrap up today's show. I want to thank Dr. Corey Edgar, who was uh, on today. I also, uh, as I said, wanted to thank Dr. Stephen Schutzer for all his support over the years and uh, the great work they do at the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. Uh, uh, if you need to reach out to me uh, with any questions, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. Many thanks to our studio producer, Tom Conley-Wilson's been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Now, next week, I'm going to have a taped program, but it's going to be all new information. Uh, my guest next week is going to be Dr. Mark Alberts, who's chairman of the Department of Neurology at Hartford HealthCare and co-physician-in-chief at the Iron Neuroscience Institute. We're going to be talking about stroke. And we're specifically, we're going to be talking about new innovations in stroke care. And something that's been very curious and on my mind is the success of mobile stroke units. These are ambulances that have CT scanners in them to help diagnose a stroke and begin treatment of a stroke before you even get to the hospital. With that. Uh, many thanks to everyone. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on our Healthy Rounds podcast. Just download it through odyssey.com. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.